it says something like that, like consult with Māori. It's like, which Māori? Like imagine if in law it said like, oh, talk to Pākehā. Mm. What? Kia ora and welcome to PhD Unpacked, season 1.5. In season one of PhD Unpacked, we looked at some Aotearoa-based, thought-provoking and impactful PhD research. So we have initiatives at the ministry like Kahikitea, which is the Māori education strategy, the aim of which is to make sure that Māori students achieve success as Māori. And those last two words are the crucial words. We don't just want them to achieve success. We want them to have their Māoriness validated. So the as Māori are really crucial. In season 1.5, we continue with our goal to make research accessible and understandable for the general public so that the mahi of these researchers can be shared more widely. Season 1.5 will tackle the topic of the built environment and seek to understand how the spaces we find ourselves in impact our emotions and sense of identity and affect how we relate to others. Today we're joined by Amelia Blundell. Amelia prides herself on being from the mighty north and is from Whangarei. She moved to Whanganui Atara, Wellington to study landscape architecture and completed her master's in architectural theory in 2020. She is currently doing a horticulture apprenticeship with Wellington City Council. Amelia began her thesis with her pepeha, and I thought it would be fitting to open this kōrero and space the same way. Ko waiau, uh, ko te pari maunganui, te maunga, ko wairoa te awa, ko nga tukimata fauroa, me mamare nga waka, uh, ko ngapuhi, me ngatikahu ki whangaroa, me ngatipakea oku iwi, uh, ko... Blundell tuku whānau, uh, nō ia, ko Amelia Blundell tuku ingoa. Yeah, kia ora. thank you for having me. Nā, mihi e Now today we're here to discuss your 2020 master's thesis titled Hey Architect, ko wai hoki queer, decolonizing mainstream placemaking in Aotearoa, New Zealand. Now I haven't actually realised that in your title you have a te reo Māori phrase. Can you actually let me know what ko wai hoki queer is because I'm Currently learning te reo, so I kind of know what it means, but I want to hear it from you. Well, yeah, I'm, I'm definitely on my te reo Māori journey as well, but the context in which I wanted to use this this phrase is kind of like, hey, architect, who the hell are you? Nice. So, kōwai hoki queer, who the hell are you? And it's, yeah, it sort of comes through in my work a lot. And it's not, I mean, it's supposed to be a little bit cheeky, you know, mm-hmm. I don't want it to be like mean, I guess, but it's supposed to just be a little bit challenging of like, you know, who who are architects in the world of Tao Māori? And yeah. I love that. And just to that point, um, in Papua New Guinea, we have this saying, which is like, you are who? So if somebody asks, like, where are you from? Or like, how Papua New Guinean are you? And whatnot, you reply with like, you are who? You know? So I really mm. like that. At the beginning of every episode of the podcast, we take a look at some definitions and concepts from the research being discussed. The academic jargon surrounding design and architecture can often make really impactful and interesting research daunting, which means people who might have an interest in the kopapa are not reached. The first thing to define is mentioned in your thesis titled. So what is placemaking? You know, in the context of this research, placemaking was really about fighting back against saying, I don't want it to just be about landscape architecture mm-hmm. or architecture or buildings or gardens. I want it to be about people's relationship to place and creating place and it was sort of about yeah right from the get-go framing the kopapa in a way where we can actually yeah recognize that inherently as humans we all work to create and make place all mm-hmm. the time from literally like 
you know, what you do in your house. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, you go into people's houses and you kind of feel like you know them Mm -hmm. because you do. It's like a part of who they are. So, yeah, the the reason I used that word was to kind of reclaim that back and say right from the get-go, I'm not going to be limited to we're just talking about architects here or these types of people that make place. It's like, yeah, everybody makes place. I love that as well because it means that everyone's involved and and we all are placemakers. Mm. You know, making our bed, that's an example mm. of placemaking. It's it's crazy to keep it to that very human level. Mm. Um, whereas architecture, I think, seems so, or design even seems so far out there. Yeah. So secondly, leading on from that, can you briefly explain what's the difference between place and space? And in your own words, explain that in the context of your master's. Gosh, I read so many different articles that were sort of like, it means this, it means that, it means this. But where I sort of landed to and the important distinction that I made between the two for my research was that place is about recognizing the social and how the social and spatial are inextricably kind of like tied together in this knot. Like you can't just have a place without people and the way they describe that place, the way they live in that place. Yeah, the way their culture is kind of embedded in that place. Yeah, and then space, I guess, was the alternative of that, of like, if you're really talking, it's like not with the social. But I would argue, where where is that, mm, you know? like. Mm. And just stepping away from definitions for a second, why was it so important that you did uh, embark on this research? Or what was it mm. that drew you into doing something along these lines? Well, I think, yeah, like upon reflection, I think it was really quite a selfish kind of endeavor at the beginning. Anyway, I think it sort of evolved and, you know, as more people got involved in what I was doing and I talked to people, it definitely evolved. But originally, I think it was about my kind of challenges going to university, studying landscape architecture and just not kind of seeing or even relating to the things I was learning. Mm -hmm. So just this like professionalization of space and and that there's good design and bad design and sort of just yeah to me that wasn't my experience growing up and it wasn't I don't know it just didn't sit well with me in terms of basically I was terrified of becoming (laughs) a landscape architect being like entrusted to do this massive master plan for the city that I knew would be like used by you know like all these different people all these different cultures and just like inherently kind of being terrified of that and thinking is that kind of okay (laughs) so yeah yeah, it was sort of that question that got me started was like are we are we okay with doing this are we okay with trusting like one or two individuals to kind of decide how something's laid out or yeah how we're gonna live I think it's interesting that you use the word selfish because that sounded very selfless to me you know you were thinking of everyone else involved and I think with research especially you need to be curious about it because you're writing quite a lot you're doing Mm. you how long did you work on your master's yeah it was a good year a good year that's a a long time to (laughs) dedicate to like you know one topic so Mm. you definitely have to be have that you know dedication and that um, passion about it You spoke about settler nativism lingering through the process of your writing and your thesis. And you also talk about being a Maori spy, which is a term I had never heard before. So um, two questions. What is settler nativism and what does it mean to describe yourself as a Maori spy? Mm, Cool. Yeah. So settler nativism, I guess, I don't know if I can actually define it because I feel like it was relatively only just hit the surface with it. But it kind of came at a time when I was thinking about you know, how how was I going to go about doing this research? And it was sort of about asking, am I the right person 
to do this research? Like what sort of gives me the right to look into what is Māori placemaking mm. and, and, and who am I to kind of, you know, write that up in like, you know, I was saying earlier to actually put that in writing so that in 10 years time, what if someone looked to my work and for what is Māori placemaking? Mm. You know, it's a pretty big claim to be kind of going at. And I guess like I worked through that and sort of thought that it's about contributing to this wider body of literature that could grow and will grow. But yeah, I think those questions were about, for me personally, recognising, you know, that whilst I'm extremely proud of my Māori whakapapa and being from Te Tai Tokiro, that I also have, you know, my fun of being living as settlers for generations. Like my, I wouldn't say my experience growing up was one like an Indigenous experience, mm. you know. And so that was really important for me because, you know, at this point in time, in an academic setting, like people are hungry for indigenous knowledge, you know, they, they really are like, and, and that's a good thing. Don't get me wrong, but it's also kind of a scary thing because mm. we're not on a level playing field, you know? So you got lots of people sort of going, Oh, are you indigenous? <laughs> like, yeah. can you speak to like this, this and this when really, yeah, I sort of wanted to be really careful about what I, what I wanted to look into and what I wanted to research versus the kind of like mana and authority I probably have to speak to a lot of it mm -hmm. yeah that brings me to yeah so being a Māori spy you know that I got that term from Māori mermaid oh I love yeah. Māori mermaid. Ma mermaid so good yeah so I yeah follow all her art content and yeah all like I love her for about you know not being Māori enough and she she wrote this poem about being a Māori spy and like I think for her some of that is sort of being like, you know, white passing and, and being in spaces where people don't realize you're Māori or mm -hmm. don't don't understand like where you're from or where you kind of speak from. And so, yeah, I, I really related to her whakaro about that. And for me, it helped me kind of understand what I was trying to do, I mm -hmm. guess, and sort of make peace with the fact that I might not, um, you know, always be in spaces commanding attention as like a speaker of my iwi or hapu, mm -hmm. but I might just be there and yeah. like it, it, I still can add value and contribute to that wider, you know, mission. Absolutely, absolutely. Now, before we go into some of the findings on your master's, I thought it was important that we begin by looking at your methodology. One point that was interesting within your methodology section of your research was your critique of research itself. You quoted Linda Tuhuai Smith, an amazing Māori academic, actually one of my favourites, mm -hmm. um, who once stated that research is the dirtiest word for Indigenous people. Now, with this at the back of your mind, how did that impact how you embarked on your research? And how does Kopapa Māori methodology take form within your research? Yeah, for me, it was about recognising that, you know, research has in the past been done like on Indigenous people. And with that like gap of separation where it's like, I'm, you know, an academic and I can help you mm. because I have these tools and I have these resources, which, which can all be true. Like that's not, you know, an awful thing, but I think it, it has meant in the past that we have like a lot of research that kind of frames Māori in like, you know, that a, a deficit way of like that, that Māori are this inherent problem and that they need to be fixed and, and we've got to help them. And so I think all the work that like Linda Tohiwai Smith and all these Māori academics had kind of paved the way for, mm -hmm. it was so much easier for someone like me coming through to go, because you can sort of pick up what's wrong about that. Mm -hmm. But then you're left with, well, should I just do any research then? You know, so it was really amazing to be able to go, okay, well, there is actually this pathway forward. There is actually this methodology that 
kind of privileges Māori ways of looking at the world and therefore Māori ways of researching. And, you know, I think the term she uses a lot is by Māori for Māori. So it's sort of about, and, and, you know, all of that kind of led me to go, well, you know, do I want to do this project up north? Do I want to do it where I'm from? Do Mm -hmm. I want to do it surrounded by, um, yeah, where I grew up and people that I grew up with? And so all of those things started to kind of inform the way the research was formed. And I think, you know, that led me to have conversations with um, the Runanga and like, you know, actually test, because here's me saying, you know, I'm a proud descendant of Ngāpuhi and Ngāti Kahuki Whangaroa and, and, you know, I want this research to be for, you know, essentially my iwi or at least contribute. But, you know, it's good to check in <laughs> and actually be like, you know, here, here is this opportunity and what kind of research could I do? And so that was an important part of the process that, you know, looking at other people that were doing research at the same time, they sort of didn't go on that journey. Mm-hmm. And so that and so that's where that methodology becomes quite different, you know, because you start to get more people involved and you start to have wider accountabilities than just, you know, thesis is due this day. Absolutely. It sort of becomes about more than that. So, yeah, that, that was my experience of kind of following a kaupapa Māori methodology. Absolutely. And, and you also described your methodology as a hikoi, as like a mm. work or journey. And I thought, wow, because I think often people think of theses as these nicely neat, you know, documents that are full with the answers or filled with, you know, at least some big theory. But framing it as a journey means that we go on it with you. That was one thing I found whilst reading it was that you were in this space when you had a lot of questions or there was a lot of gaps um, that we're going to you know, dive into, but you go along that journey and you find that there's not one way to answer it. Mm. Um, and then this is just, you know, your thesis is just one way of, of looking at it, which is absolutely amazing. Mm. On the podcast, we often take the time to look at why this research was so important in the introduction of your research, you spoke about the impacts of colonization on Maori placemaking in Aotearoa. Can you briefly explain some of the key shifts towards placemaking that came with colonization? Yeah, so the example that I always go to is, you know, like the grid patterns that came from Britain. Like you can see it in, I think it's like Martinborough, mm-hmm. but you can also see it in Te Whanganui Atara. So like, you know, these places were literally... I think there's a line in my thesis that's like, you know, when people came here, they thought this place was empty. And it's just, it's not true, you know, like the, this, there was papa, there was rangi, there mm-hmm. was like mana whenua, there was, there was a whole world <laughs> already here. And so I think, yeah, some of those really obvious ones are kind of the built infrastructure that, that literally is the, a lot of the groundwork of all our urban areas today. It's like the, the way we have roads, the way we have our yeah like water infrastructure Mm -hmm. all of these ways of like looking at the environment and um yeah living with it I guess it's kind of like the obvious remnants of it I think and I'm a real firm believer that like colonization's ongoing like it's still happening I see a lot of the way we kind of think about space still and that's even in like a law sort of space so Mm -hmm. like the um, resource management act how we designate public and private like like the this is culture, mm-hmm. you know. But mm-hmm. but I still think where you talk to the average person and and they see that as kind of blanket normal, yeah, for everyone. And I'm a real challenger of like I don't think that is like I think that is I don't know what you want to call it like Pakia maybe not Pakia say it's not us maybe say it's European mm-hmm. Europeans I don't know they say it's not I don't know who it is but yeah. you know we have to acknowledge that it is how our kind of built environment is 
like you know we have fences and you have your whare of your next door neighbors like it's how we're living mm-hmm. yeah and it's also yeah. interesting because you think of like the public works act which was you know, for those listening, it's it was a law that meant that the crown was able to take Manafenua's land on the grounds that they would build a school or a church or something for public consumption. Mm-hmm. So a lot of Maori gave up their whenua or made an agreement um, with that, knowing that they were doing it for a community thing, even though that was not always the mm. case. But it's interesting to think about something like that. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. So you also stated that most designers do not go past creating spaces with aesthetic biculturalism. Can you give us an example of aesthetic biculturalism and explain why it's so important that we go past this? The perfect example for me that I always think of is when you go to a place and there's like a sign or something and it's about the Māori that used to be here. So like Māori used to use this space like this or, you know, even in, in Wellington, like there's so many sites where it's like, you know, Māori once did this here or this was where the marakai was or this. And, I, and, you know, whilst that's important, I'm not saying we forget history, but I just think it's what else are we doing? Because Māori is still here, you know, and and we're still doing lots of cool stuff. So I think for me, that's where that, yeah, the aesthetic biculturalism of kind of like, oh, we're happy to include your narratives in our design. Mm-hmm. But at the end of the day, it's like, it's still our design. We have the kind of funding. <laughs> We've got the the project and essentially like, you know, we've got the the mandate to do what we want to do. Mm-hmm. And like you can, where possible, fit in with that. Mm-hmm. But, you know, yeah, it kind of stays, the, the control stays with them, I guess. And so, yeah, it was really about challenging, like when you say biculturalism architecture, it's also about challenging that notion of like we're not on level playing field. So you can't just say, it's even mm-hmm. <laughs> like you share your ideas, I'll share mine and then we'll meet somewhere in the middle and it'll be perfect. It's like, no, we, we've got this whole whakapapa mm-hmm. of, you know, like colonization that has created this gap. And so you can't pretend like, yeah, now we're all of a sudden ready to work with Māori and, and do more Māori things. Yeah. Absolutely. It doesn't work that way. <laughs> <laughs> and I think, and I think, you know, like an example in law that where it becomes really obvious to me is like the fact that we, it says something like that, like consult with Māori. It's like, which Māori? Like imagine if in law it said like, oh, talk to Pākehā. Mm. What? <laughs> How would you go about getting consensus from all Pākehā? Like you just wouldn't do that. And so I think like that there to me demonstrates like, you know, where we need to get to. Like, we need to understand when we're talking about, like, Māori, it's like, what, f- like, kind of social infrastructure are we talking there? Are you talking to the hapu? Mm. Are you talking to the whānau? Uh, like, who are you actually talking to? Because that's so important too, you know, and that's, there's, you know, lots of kōrero in there too about, like, representation and mm-hmm. how wrong that can go when, yeah, we kind of don't have the nuances of, like people's lived experience kind of included in the wider conversation. Absolutely. And I think um, to bring it into like a Pacific sense, because that's what, you know, I know about Mm. is um, so a lot of times when NGOs do like funding or projects in like Samoa, for example, they try to do it at the community level, but they don't work at a community level. They work Mm -hmm. on a family basis. Um, So it doesn't make sense. It's disjointed and it's disconnected. And that's where the importance of, understanding a culture not just defining it or not just putting labels on it goes Mm. yeah so we're gonna go to the crux of your research the really nitty-gritty stuff 
You had three guiding questions and I wanted to focus on how you answered those questions or more accurately, what your findings were because some of those questions, man, I was like, these are, these are heavy stuff. There's a lot there to unpack. So firstly, you posed the question of who are the placemakers or placekeepers in contemporary Maori placemaking and in particular in relation to exercising tinoranga tiratanga. So can you tell us what you found? So this, like, w- where I'm kind of speaking from is, I think it was, it ended up being, like, 10 interviews um, with different kaimahi Māori, all who, like, are working or are from Te Tai Tokido. But, yeah, so the, so the where I'm speaking from is kind of what, what came out of conversations with them and, and their experience. But, yeah, so I think the first one that stands out, and obviously this was from working with Arco, is that, you know, a huge placemaker is our taitamariki you know like the and I saw it firsthand going to the workshops and sitting in like the ideas they have and the ways that they think about space is just so important and kind of like a lot of the stuff that like architects get stuck on or even landscape architects you just see like tamariki just they're not even thinking about that because they're literally almost like three steps ahead of like, that's not really an issue. And I'm not discrediting, again, I feel really like <laughs> conscious of landscape architects or people being like, I studied for five years. Like, do you seriously not think I have anything to add? And I do. But I just think in terms of the idea, like, you know, our, our kids grow up in these places and they have such fresh minds and they're experiencing these places and they're so, they've got so many aspirations for what they want the future to be. It's like you, you can't get those ideas later on in life so Mm -hmm. I think yeah that was the first one like just understanding that yeah it's so important for our taitamariki to you know not only for us Mm. to contribute to spaces but for them Mm -hmm. like and that's what I saw too is how good it was for our taitamariki to actually be in those spaces to have that sense of agency of like you know people want to ask me like about how I live and what I do because it's going to help create this make this place better and I can contribute to that you know and that's, again, like, you know, I was talking earlier about where this research came from. It's like that was sort of the experience I had growing up was that I wasn't really connected into what happened around Whangarei. That's for sure. It sort of just, like, happened, and that's what made me want to be a landscape architect. I thought, how do we make cool places? I want to go do that. And so, yeah, that sort of came full circle for me. And then the other one was, of course, like our komatua and kuya. So, you know, like just understanding and, and hearing from a lot of the kaimahi the amount of work they do currently, like supporting designers, supporting architects, you know, having those conversations most often, like from what I heard for free, you know, like using their time, the, the matauranga that they have. And I, I think the lived experience too, I'm trying to remember that. I can't remember the specific example someone ca- like gave me, but, you know, it's things like a planner will come in and say, we want to designate this piece of land for this use. And literally, you know, we'll have a komatua that can say, no, 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 you can't do that. Because did you know 50 years ago on that whenua, this was happening and this, you know, and it's that sort of knowledge that, you know, doesn't matter where you study for five years, that like you just won't know that. And so mm. it's about how we value that. And I think, you know, in Te Ao Māori, we, we value that, you know, so highly in that of our komatua and kuya. But in a design and architecture space, you know, when you've got a project due or you're trying to get a bid for funding are you really going to sit down and kind of value that in the same way I don't know I hope so but (laughs) absolutely and I think also because Māori are very you know based on oratory and oral traditions it's not written down in a book Mm. so I think there's that 
you know, Pakia coming in or Toei and whoever it is that are coming in as planners will want to see where that's written down or where mm. can you find that, where it's like you have to trust, like Komatua, mm. Kuya, they know it. And it's that it's that process of trusting that um, that is actually leading on to the second question I have, which is Māori have agency, obviously, and the right to determine their own lives. But you talk about this idea that mainstream designers and placemakers need to relinquish control and acknowledge the power imbalances. So firstly, what do you see as that uh, process of relinquishing that control and and what impact do you see that process having on placemaking in Aotearoa? If I keep going with that example, like, you know, a potential scenario that, that could have happened there is that a planner goes, oh, have you spoken to this Komatua? They know so much. We need to, We need to get him sitting down and we need to map out everything he knows. Mm. And we need to, you know, which all good intent. And yeah, for sure, like that planner probably can share that more widely and maybe that will get implemented a lot better. But it, it's sort of missing the point, right? Because it's like that Komatua has that sense of, you know, tanoranga teratanga. That, that's his matauranga. Mm. I, so I, I don't know about that process of like, you know, if only a sort of like, professional practice coming from a place of like if only we knew everything you knew we wouldn't need you anymore Mm. and we'd be fine and you go back doing whatever you want to do and we'll just take it from here but I sort of that's what I kind of came to at the findings of my thesis was that we don't want that (laughs) you know like actually Māori are happy to be the keepers of that knowledge and they're the best people for it you know so like how do we actually support that going forward that you know Komatua might be people like experts that we pay to come in and share that matauranga with us and and actually how do they want to share it because some might actually have avenues in their own iwi and hapu that they want to share it that way and like how do we as mainstream practice kind of support that and go that's you know Mm. like tika that's what we want to do too because it's what's right for everyone so I think it's like getting yeah getting past that notion of even though it's good intent, sort of thinking, like, if only I knew, and I think lots of people have it, you know, it's like, if only I knew more Māori or, or if only, like te reo Māori, if only I understood a bit more, then I could just, I could help. Mm. And that that is true, but but it's also like, you know, in, in lo- loads of ways in my research, I sort of found that, like, Māori don't need our help. <laughs> Sometimes they just need us to get out of the way, you know? like, yeah. And so, yeah, it was, it was finding that balance, I think, and, and yeah, in my thesis, understanding that there's things we can do in mainstream practice to be a better treaty partner. Um, but then also there's things that are happening right now that if we sort of just step back <laughs> and let continue to happen or find out ways we can support it, mm-hmm. I just think we're going to go from strength to strength, you know? So finally, your third guiding question was essentially reflecting upon your own research and seeing how that would affect contemporary Māori placemaking. And furthermore, how that has this flow and effect on architecture and planning. So how would you describe Māori placemaking more generally? And why do you think people who are listening to this podcast or those working within planning need to understand what it looks like in Aotearoa? Māori placemaking can't happen without Māori, Mm. I think is the first and foremost. And I think that's quite important in terms of, you know, like as we're going forward and as we have like new architectural practices wanting to design in different rohi and they, and they want to do different things and and people are becoming more aware you know they know they're like i want to know the history and it's a real co- like common tendency in architecture for people to kind of want 
like use the history of a place to sort of start the initial idea process. Mm -hmm. But I think, you know, I would like to see people just sort of acknowledging that that might not be their place Mm -hmm. to kind of take on that idea. And I think, you know, Arco is the perfect example. Like some of them don't even describe themselves as architects. They describe themselves as facilitators of a process. And so you go to their sort of workshops and they're not sitting there Mm -hmm. saying to people, what do you want? We'll do it. They're saying, what do you want to do? How can we help you? Mm. And so I think that's the, that was the main difference for me, you know? And in terms of Māori placemaking, I think the most fundamental thing is it can't happen without Māori. To end the episode, now that it's been a couple of years after submitting your thesis, also I want to note that you submitted it in 2020, which I think all of us can relate to being the COVID year. So Was it the COVID it year? It was the COVID year. It was our first oh, lockdown. It was, it was at the start of... Oh, sorry, I did actually submit it before. There we go. Well, that's even better. So you submitted it prior to yes. this COVID world that we're living in still. What are some of the things that from your research has really stuck with you or that have surprised you or even in this, you know, like I've just said, this COVID world that you think back on and think this is more important than ever now, you know? Mm. I mean, obviously a lot of the the research and the learnings have stuck with me and I think they've definitely led me, you know, to where I am now doing a horticulture apprenticeship. Like this definitely made me want to kind of go back to the basics and just like learn how to grow things and and learn like how to sustain like myself and my whanau that definitely sent me on that direction but it also I think like on a wider level made me way more open to like people's different lived identities and just like and just understanding that like even though it can be really helpful and really important to situate ourselves and where I'm from like but to also like not just take that at face value, like mm. not like always be open, always be curious because like just because someone says they're Māori doesn't mean this and it doesn't mean that. And it's like not for you to say, you know, like we're all evolving and we're changing like as we go and we're all learning new things. So it definitely, you know, and I and I had that with that experience with the research where like I did all this reading and I got so riled up. Like I was sitting there reading like <laughs> Linda Tui Smith. I was reading, you know, Mason Drury and I was reading um, Ranginui Walker and I was just like, nah, you know, <laughs> I can't believe this. Yeah. I can't believe what I'm reading. Like this is, you know, whatever. And it sort of was like a bit naive of me, I guess, to mm. kind of like that was my moment in time to kind of have these realizations. But then sort of as I went out to go have conversations with people, I realized that for some people, like they've been living that their whole lives. And it, and I it, honestly, I reflected on it. I was like, it was a bit rude of me to sort of kind of just like wake up mm-hmm. to some of these like realizations and then think that kind of, you know, almost look around and be like, well, what are we going to do to change about it? It's like I kind of had a new appreciation for just time yeah. <laughs> and the scale of time and just like how to take a deep breath and be like, okay, all that might be true. But actually, like, how do you just like be the best person you can be and like always try to be learning from people? So your episode is actually framed as the national uh, version of this uh, season. And that's because I thought that with, you know, Te Ao Māori or with Mataranga Māori, it's something that I think we as a nation should be caring about. But your point that you've just made is placemaking is so innately personal. It's Mm. everyone experiences differently, although we're all living in similar built environments or similar spaces, how we experience it, totally different. Mm. And, And that understanding is really what, what makes it such a beautiful thing. 
there were a lot of people involved in your masters and I'm a big believer of things taking a village. So I wanted to give you the opportunity, if you wanted to, to give a shout out to those people who might be listening, who supported you throughout and beyond because it's important to recognize whatever we create is the result, not just of an individual. So although you're sitting in front of me and amazing, glad that you're here. There's a whole bunch of people behind you that I'm sure brought you here. You know, my greatest achievement wasn't like finishing this or getting this research done. Like, you know, my greatest achievement would be that people that were involved in the research or even my whānau along the way that like, you know, continuously supported me, that if they could hear my kōrero and, and like see a piece of themselves in it or, or, you know, even relate to it a little bit, like that would be winning for me. So, yeah, no, 100% agree with you. And, yeah, I was so fortunate to work with so many amazing people that year, you know, like one of them, especially being my supervisor, Rebecca Kittle. She is an amazing um, Māori academic, artist, everything. She's, yeah, she's an incredible wahine. Um, and yeah, so ngā mihi nui kia um, Becky. But yeah, and also every, all, all the kaimahi that I interviewed, um, all the taitamariki at the workshops, <laughs> like they won't even remember me. They were so into it. <laughs> but no, yeah, honestly, um, like I said at the start, I'm so proud to be from Titai Tokiro. And like, I think that's where I get my love of places. Um, and yeah, so that whole place kind of informed my research. Namihi Nui to Amelia for coming on to PhD Unpacked. If you're looking to learn more, you can have a read of Amelia's Masters, which can be found in the bio for this episode. On the next episode of PhD Unpack, we talk to Kudzai Farusa about her Masters thesis, Inside Out, the role of interior architects in providing opportunities for social and cultural development in the urban interior. There's even more opportunity now to create spaces of interiority, so spaces that feel safe uh, within the city, spaces that create opportunities for smaller types of groups and not like vast buildings, Mm. you know. Yeah, just to create intimate spaces within the city, I think it's definitely important. To keep up to date with the various podcasts and projects that Coalesce is producing, head to at CoalesceNZ on Instagram. And for more from us, it's at PhD Unpacked on Instagram. Thank you, Wellington Access Radio, for the space to record the show. Ma te wa.